What a wonderful joy to be with you today at Grace Point. Boy, this is an exciting day for me. Uh, this morning at breakfast, uh, Farrell, my father-in-law, said, Are you excited to be coming back to this church, uh, the church where you started? And I'll tell you right now, Dad, I very much am. So uh, it's exciting to be here and see faces and, and seeing everybody come together is is just a real joy for me. And then to hear Rex tell a little bit of the story just blessed me as I was listening and, and how much this church has been a part of our journey. Uh, this church took a, a risk on us when I was 23 years old and just out of school and had a chemistry and zoology background. And the people of this church really didn't care about that. They said, we want you to serve here. And I was able to go around with Pastor Sandy Ardry and Jerry Stiff and just watch them and Rex and just watch and learn and understand what it meant to be a pastor. And so I consider so much of who I am today as a result of the ministry of this church to me as I turned and tried to minister to you all during that time. Uh, thank you, Rex, for allowing me, Dr. Person, uh, for allowing me to to uh, come today. And Pastor Edgar, uh, wonderful uh, leading of the Lord today in the service. Uh, what a joy to be here with you today. There were two shoe companies. Both of the shoe companies had the same desire, independent of each other, not knowing what the other was doing. They wanted to get into a brand new country to sell shoes. And so both of the shoe companies sent their shoe salesmen into the new country. When they got into the new country, both of them discovered the exact same thing. And that was that nobody in the entire country wore shoes. One of the shoe salesmen, after discovering what he discovered, sent an email back to his company and he said, cancel all orders, nobody wears shoes here. The other shoe salesman, discovering the same thing, sent an email back to his, his company and said, triple all orders, nobody wears shoes here. See, it's all perspective, isn't it? It's the way that you look at the same situation. For the past few months, many people have asked my wife and I the same question. Why? Why is really a perspective question. Why in the world would a pastor of a church become a missionary? Why would a pastor leave a church that's growing and exciting and everything's going well, where the people love him and he loves the people? Why would you leave that? And go to a place where you don't know anybody. Why would you leave the comfort of a beautiful parsonage and a strong, good salary for a pastor? Why would you leave that and go to a place where you don't speak the language, where you will live in an apartment, and the missionary salary, while I won't go hungry, is, is not very strong? Why would you do that, I've been asked. Well, the, the reality for that question is that God calls. But I want to give you a little bit more to that story, because it wasn't just one morning that I woke up and thought, wow, I think God's calling me to go be a missionary in the former Soviet Union. It actually began, as I look back, it began when Jenny was a little girl, as I look through our history. Her family lived right next door to another family named Lonnie and Connie Norris. You know Lonnie and Connie. Lonnie and Connie were lay people in this church, and they were successful business people and loved by the community and everybody knew them and and was blessed by them and they this was a strong family and I remember when I was just back from Olive, Olivet Nazarene University 
Lonnie and Connie Knorr standing up in a church service and saying, we feel called by God to go to Volgograd, Russia. The Iron Curtain had just fallen and the Soviet Union had collapsed and and what had been communism and atheism was now open and they were saying, well, listen, we'll have you come. And Lonnie and Connie sensed the call of God in their life and I'll I'll never forget what occurred, there was one particular day where Lonnie and Connie Norris, because the Church of Nazarene as a general church was not going to send them over to Russia because they were the atypical family for a missionary family. They were older and they had four kids and they just were the type of couple that the church oftentimes would send and then they would discover it wasn't what they thought and so they would send them back. And so the Church of Nazarene said, we're not going to send you. You're going to have to pay for your own way. And I'll never forget one particular day that Lonnie and Connie had an estate sale. And they sold everything that they had. They sold their house, all of their belongings, their cars. They sold it all. And they headed to the mission field. Well, when I came on staff at this church, my responsibilities were evangelism and discipleship, which included the missionary uh, endeavors. And so we prayed, and, and I was a part of helping the church to pray for them, and, and they, they became a part of who I was as I prayed for Lonnie and Connie Norris. Well, the years passed, and the Lord opened the door for us to take a team. And I remember in 1998, the very first team that went that I was a part of, And we went over to Volgograd, Russia, and we got to actually be a part of building some of the stuff, some of the churches that were used in ministry there. And when I went that first time, I discovered that Russia was a lot different than what I had thought it would be. When I first went, I was expecting something different than I saw. You know, in the United States of America growing up here, it was always the U.S. versus Russia. And you might remember some of the cartoons even. It showed up everywhere where Boris and Natasha were the, they were the bad ones. It was, it was that way. And then Rocky IV as a teenager, that was my show. And, and Ivan Draga, I wanted to get in the ring and hit him too. It was just the way it was. Well, when I went, I discovered something totally different. They weren't the monsters that I had created in my mind that they were supposed to be. They were wonderful people. And the Lord used that very first trip to etch in my heart the image of these people and increased my prayer for this this area of the world. Well, over the years that followed, three or four times we got to go. One time, my wife and I, right before we came back the second time, my wife and I were able to go for three and a half months to Russia. And we spent time traveling from city to city and, and teaching Russian pastors. And what an incredible time that was. And again, each of the times we went, The Lord deepened our desire and our heart for these people. Well, I remember uh, receiving a phone call. It was about a year ago. It was in January of last year. received a phone call from Jay and Tiana Sunberg. Uh, Jay Sunberg and Chuck are brothers. And so Jay Jay and his wife were missionaries in, uh, they were in Bulgaria at the time. Now they're in Hungary. But while they're in Bulgaria, they called me. They were members of my church in Houston, Texas. And Jay and Tiana called me on the phone, and they said, in October of this year, October 2011, in October, we're going to have a missions conference. And we would like for you, if you would pray about possibly coming to the missions conference in Turkey. And uh, there's going to be about 700 people there, missionaries and lay leaders from across Europe and Asia are going to gather together. We'd like for you to share devotional times with some of the fields and 
and then a, a workshop during the conference, and would you consider coming? As they talked, there was something in me that really, really wanted to go and be there. Uh, I didn't say that to them, but I got off the phone, and Jenny had overheard my side of the conversation, and as soon as I hung up the phone, Jenny said, Scott, you need to go to Turkey on this trip. And when she said that, and I'm not a tearful kind of person, but when she said that, I started crying. I, I said, Jenny, I've never wanted to go on any trip like I want to go on this trip. For some reason, I really want to go. Well, skip forward to October of this past year, just a few months ago. I, the Lord opened the doors, and I was able to go. And as I come into the hotel room in Turkey, Antalya, Turkey, one of the first people I see are Lonnie and Connie Norris. And Lonnie and Connie, uh, we had a big hug and, and reunion. It had been a lot of long time since I had seen them. And we, we spent time together. Every time I had a chance, I was spending time with them. Uh, they probably thought I was their shadow, but I followed them everywhere. They, I wanted to be with them. And there was a conversation that happened. And make a long story short, Lonnie and Connie said, would you mind sitting down and having lunch together? And so we went to lunch and and at that lunch, they said, you know, Lonnie said, you know, my background is business. And there's a lot on the field that, that I believe that evidence of the Lord calling me here because I have to do some specific things. However, because of those things that I'm going to have to do, there are some things that I feel like are going to be neglected and, don't, and, and they can't be neglected. There's many Russian pastors who need the encouragement and the challenge of someone who's been a pastor Someone who has theological education that can help them. And would you consider you and Jenny and your girls coming over and being missionaries and coming alongside us and helping us in the ministry? And I said to him, yes, I'll pray. The next month of our life was some of the most challenging times of prayer that I've had as a Christian. We did not want to leave Houston, Texas. We loved the city. We loved our people at the church. Things were going well. It was not something that we were desiring to do. In fact, we had planned and hoped that we would retire in Houston, Texas. And, but every time we prayed, it felt as if when we prayed to stay, there was a closed door. And when we prayed to go, we felt encouraged in our hearts to go. On October 27th, a Thursday night at about 10 o'clock in the evening, Jenny and I were praying and we knew in our hearts that we were supposed to go. I remember during that time of prayer, hearing a pastor speak. It was actually at the Turkey conference. Uh, and he said these words. He said, live your life in such a way that it makes no sense apart from the existence of God. Live your life in such a way that it makes no sense apart from the existence of God. You know, as Christians today, especially Christians in America, we live our lives in a way that, that really makes sense, even to the world. The world may look in, unsaved people may look at our life and say, you know, that's not for me, but it really makes sense. You see, we try to develop our life around us where we don't need to have a whole lot of faith. We, we create things so that we don't have to have faith. We have insurance and we have retirement savings and we do all these things so that at the time that it comes, we don't have to have faith. We don't want to give too much away because if we do, we won't have the money and that's our safety zone and that's the way we've developed as Christians in America. And I felt like the Lord was saying to me, 
I'm calling you out of that, out of that place of comfort to a place where I want you to live where people would say, that doesn't make sense. That does not make sense. You ask Noah if it made sense, if the people thought it made sense that he would do what he did. It didn't make sense. Abraham left his home and his security and all the people that would protect him, and he went to a new land. It didn't make sense. People living the Christian life should not make sense to the world. Well, the CIS is the place that we've been called. The CIS is made up of 12 former republics or former countries that are now countries that were a part of the Soviet Union before its fall in 1991. The Church of the Nazarene is currently in six of the 12 countries that are there, and all 12 of them become our mission field, though, but we're currently already in six of them. Some of those countries are Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, Moldova, Armenia, and then the sixth country is what we call creative access country number two. We're not allowed to say it publicly like this uh, because it's a country where the government and the majority of the people there oppose Christianity, and so it can produce some unsafe reality for our, our leaders there. So we're in six of the countries. Our ministries there include approximately 45 fully organized churches on five districts. There are six compassionate ministry centers. There are six drug and alcohol rehab centers. And there's an extensive theological education program that has about 120 students currently enrolled. Our mission on the field is to make Christ-like disciples in the nations. It's the same as your mission, to make Christ-like disciples in the nations. I remember one of our general superintendents, Dr. Jerry Porter, saying, programs do not make disciples. Disciples make disciples. And so what God is doing in our life is he's taking a family of disciples of Jesus, us, and he's taking us and he's putting us in a new place and he's saying, make disciples who make disciples who make disciples as we go. Our responsibilities on the field will be primarily discipleship uh, of the pastors, particularly. We'll work with these pastors and help them. The discipleship side of it will look like this. What does it mean to be a, a good husband? What does it mean to be a good father? What is, how do you develop your devotional life and grow in faith and as you, as you lead the church? And so just basic discipleship things. But it also includes uh, leadership development then. And so what does it mean to be a pastor of a local church and to help the church to look outward rather than inward and those kind of things? How do you lead a church? And then the third area is theological education. Many of these pastors are brand new Christians and they're new to the Church of the Nazarene and they're standing in our pulpits. And it'll be my responsibility to help them understand what we believe, the deeper things of faith and how to communicate those things to the congregation. Jenny and I are scheduled with our two girls is for six months from starting January 1 through the end of June, we are volunteers in the Church of Nazarene. It's called Mission Corps, and we raise our own support and pay for our own way to go over. And so we had an estate sale, very much like uh, Lonnie and Connie, where we sold the things that we had. I remember looking at a pile of boxes that was ours, a, a little smaller than a car, and I thought, I'm 40 years old, and that's all that I have to my name. It was kind of a weird feeling. Um, but I... We, for six months, we, we serve as volunteers. Uh, three of those months are doing just what we're doing today. We're a little bit more than halfway through our time as vol- of our time here in the States for three months, going from church to church. Uh, from January 1 to the end of March, those three months, 
we will have slept in over 26 different beds moving around the country. Um, and so it's, it's quite crazy for us. On April 9th, the Monday after Easter, we'll be with you on Easter out in the congregation. The Monday after Easter, we will fly from Fort Wayne to Kiev, Ukraine, which will be our home city and hometown. Kiev, Ukraine. The Ukraine is about, it's a country about the size geographically of Texas. And so you get the picture of the size of that. And Texas is a large state. I'm coming from there now. I want to remind you of that. It's a large state. So Ukraine is about the size of Texas. And Kiev is a city with 3.5 million people. So it's a big urban area. And this is where we will be living. In June, uh, actually in July of this year, we will begin with pay then as intern missionaries. We believe that will be our title, intern missionaries in the Church of Nazarene over the CIS. And we will continue in that responsibility until we're commissioned as missionaries within the church. Our first year on the field will be engulfed by learning the Russian language. If you're not familiar with Russian or you haven't heard it or seen it very much, I need to tell you that it does not use our same alphabet. And so it uses an alphabet based on the Cyrillic alphabet. There are 33 letters rather than 26. Some of the letters are similar. They look the same as ours, but they make a different sound. And so you're thinking one thing because of growing up in America, and you have to say it different in uh, Russian. And so we're learning that. I remember the first day after my final Sunday at Living Word was December 25th, Christmas Day. And on the 26th, I said, the day after I'm done at Living Word, I'm going to start studying Russian. And we bought uh, the Rosetta Stone, and I said, for three hours a day, I'm going to study Russian. Well, on Monday, the 26th of December, I sat down in front of my computer, all excited to study Russian. And about an hour and a half into my three-hour first session, I got the worst headache of my entire life. And I quit. And I said, I'm done. And about two weeks later, it took me two weeks, about two weeks later, I started it up now, and we're doing an hour a day on Rosetta Stone. And I feel comfortable with that six days a week. And I look forward to the Sabbath when I cannot study Russian for a Sunday. Uh, Let me just, I've been practicing, so I want to give you a little bit of what Russian sounds like. Zelonia Sabaka Chitayak Kanigu. Not bad for someone who's just practicing. Okay. The problem is I just said the green dog reads a book. So <laughs> I'm not quite there yet. I'm working on it. I want to help you with a little Russian uh, today to learn something in Russian. Everybody say the color yellow. yellow. Okay. Now everybody say the color blue. blue. And everybody say bus. bus. Okay. Now put the three together. Yellow, blue bus. Yellow. I love you too. That's what you just said. Yellow blue bus is I love you in Russian. So now you know a little bit of Russian. We've been called to a place where spiritually speaking, nobody in these countries wears shoes. And what I sense God saying in my heart today is triple the order. Nobody wears shoes in these countries. During our time of seeking the Lord for his direction in our call, The Lord gave us some promises from a passage in Isaiah, and I want to share just a little bit of that today. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. I believe it will be on the screen, and then uh, you all can uh, look in your scriptures as well. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. Would you stand with me as we read the word 
together this morning. It says, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you, and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Father, I ask that today you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. I pray that your spirit would speak to hearts today and that the promises that you gave to me through this passage, Lord, would become the promises for each person here in the way that they need to hear them today. We open our hearts to you, spirit. Speak to us whatever you want to say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The first promise the Lord gave me from this passage is so simple, it's almost easy enough to skip over it and miss it. It's a promise from verse 1, and the promise is simply, I will be your God. I will be your God. Now, don't miss that. The God who created everything, the entire universe by the spoken word, and the one who created you and me, he says, that creator says, I'm going to be your God as you go on the mission field. I will be your God. Isaiah 43, verse 1, says, The Lord who created you says, listen to what he says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. I will be your God. Back 40 plus years ago, there was a pastor named Mel McCullough who was pastoring in the Kansas City area. Some of you may know Dr. McCullough today. Um, He's in charge of uh, Nazarene uh, giving in a special way. I forget the name of it now. But anyway, uh, very long-term pastor, 40-year pastor. And Dr. McCullough was a young pastor at the time in Kansas City. And a family came and visited his church. Their names were Mike and Linda Couch. And Mike and Linda were unsaved and and were just starting to, to look into a church. And they visited uh, Dr. McCullough's church and Dr. McCullough on Monday called them and said, would you be okay if I came by and visited you this week? And they said, and, uh, Linda said, yes, Mike was a little bit more reluctant and Linda said, yes, come on by. And, and so pastor McCullough and his wife came over to their house. And when he came in, Mike couch had chosen to smoke a really long cigar when the pastor was coming to kind of try to shock Dr. McCullough, and so he came in, and he was blowing his cigar in front of him, and as he came in, a couple of hours, to make a long story short, they were there at the house, and by the end of the time, Mike and Linda Couch got down on their knees and prayed and asked Jesus to forgive their sins and come into their life, and their life was radically transformed, Mike and Linda. 
Mike started growing in the Lord, and he started to sense God say to him, I want you to be a pastor in the Church of the Nazarene. And so Mike said yes to that call, and he was in Kansas City, and so he went to Kansas City Theological Seminary for school. And while he was there, he was uh, instructed by a brand-new professor, a young man named Chick Shaver, uh, Dr. Chick Shaver. He had just started being a professor there at the seminary, and Dr. Shaver gave him a homework assignment. Uh, Dr. Shaver is somebody at the seminary. He's now retired, but while he was there, he was a different kind of professor. Rather than giving seminary students a bunch of reading to do about evangelism, what Dr. Shaver would do is he would give them assignments in evangelism to go over and knock on neighbors' doors and talk to them about their faith and then tell what it was like to do that. And most of the most of the students at seminary didn't like that kind of a class. They would much rather read about it and write a paper and but they did not want to fail the class at seminary and so mike reluctantly kind of like jonah went across the street and knocked on the door of my parents home i was about one year old at the time and they knocked on the door of my parents home having no idea all of the many many problems spiritually that were beyond that door behind that door my parents had been separated in their relationship, they had been planning for a divorce. They had actually moved to Kansas City for their very last chance to make their marriage work. They said, let's try one more time. And this knock, the very first week we were in Kansas City, I was one year old. This knock comes on the door, and my parents open the door, and they're doing a homework assignment, and they ask my parents five questions. And the last question is, if you don't have a church, would you consider coming to our church? And Mike, this new Christian, asked my dad these questions, and my dad says, no, we don't have a church, and yes, we'll come visit your church. And they went the very first Sunday. They were in Kansas City. We went as a family to Shawnee Church of the Nazarene. My dad, an unsaved man at the time, and my mom, both non-Christians at the time, my dad says to this day that that pastor, he felt like that Sunday that he had walked around behind my dad all week long and watched his life and came and was preaching right to my dad. And in that moment, at the end of the service, he had everybody close their eyes and bow their heads. And he said, if you feel like God's speaking to you, I want you to raise your hand quietly. And my dad, in the very back row, raised his hand. And he said, put your hands down. And he said, look up. He said, if you raised your hand, I want you to step out of your pew and come down and kneel down at one of these wooden benches because we want to pray with you. And my dad did not move at all. He stayed in the back. And that pastor, having seen his hand and not seen him walking, came down off of the platform and he pointed right at him and he went like this. Mike and Linda, who had invited my parents to come to church that day, were horrified that the pastor had just called them out of the service. But my mom and dad came down, and they knelt down at a wooden altar just like this, and they gave their hearts to Jesus, and their lives were completely transformed. They were so different in that moment. God had really gone inside and made a change in their heart. They were so different, they didn't want anything to change. And in Kansas City, there's a, a loop, 435, that goes around the city. And my dad and mom did not want to go home because they thought it'll change. The feeling we have inside will change, and we don't want it to change. And so they went out, and they got in their car, and they drove around 435 three times and came back to church that evening because they didn't want anything to change. My couch 
would disciple my dad every night for one year before my parents left Kansas City. He would disciple my dad by throwing a baseball with him after work every day out in the street. And he would talk to my dad about Jesus. 25 years after that day, I was pastoring an associate pastor here at at Lake Avenue. And the Lord said, I want you to go to seminary. And in all that, I tell you that whole story to say, I went to seminary and going to my very first seminary class, and it's being taught by an older gentleman named Chick Shaver, Dr. Chick Shaver. And now the one who had given the homework assignment that led to my family coming to Jesus and ultimately my coming to Jesus was now teaching me how to turn and and lead people to Jesus. I tell you that to say this. That's the God who's promised me that he's going to go with me. He's the only one who can do all that. And there's a whole lot more to that story. He's the only one who can do that. And so I'm telling you today that no matter what you're going through, how big of a mountain that it seems in front of you, he's given you the same promise. I will be your God. You can trust him. I will be your God. The Lord gave my mom a promise when she came to Christ. It was Psalm 23, verse 6, and it says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And it was as if my mom and dad have walked, and goodness and mercy, goodness and love, have followed them everywhere they went. The promise that God had made, he kept it in their life. The second promise is from verse 2. I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you alone. You see, no calamity can swallow up the people of God. No matter what comes in our way, God's promise is, I will not leave you alone. But I want you to notice that there will be difficult times. It's not a promise that everything's going to be easy. Isaiah 43, 2 says, when you pass through the waters... I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. It was Tuesday night, two days after I had just finished at my church, uh, December 27th. It was a Tuesday night. And I had just unpacked my stuff at my office and bringing down all the books and, and stuff. Seven years before this, I've, I had back surgery, lower back surgery. It had hurt my back very bad and had to have kind of an emergency surgery. And now on 27th of December, I had loaded all my books and boxes and I went home and I got up off the couch at about 9.30 at night and my back completely froze up in that moment. I'll never forget that very first feeling. I, the first thing I had was nausea. I thought, I was, I thought I am, this hurts just like it did the first time when I had to have surgery. And I stood there in shock and the first thing that came into my mind is I'm going to have to have surgery again. And here I am trying to go on the mission field. And I've got to go to all these churches, and we've got to raise support and, and, and prayer support and financial support, and I'm not going to be able to do it. My wife helped me get down into bed, and I, I laid down and was, was sleeping uh, off and on during the night as I could. I woke up about 3 in the morning, and it was so bad. The pain was so bad, I couldn't go back to sleep. And the enemy was after me that night. And what I felt like he was saying to me, I didn't recognize at first that it was him, but I felt like I was the biggest failure in the whole world. I was going to have to call all the pastors that had said I could come and tell them I can't come. I have to have surgery. 
the church that was sending me and was so excited about what God was doing in our life, they were going to be so disappointed. I felt like the biggest failure in the world. Uh, Jenny, at 3 in the morning, was awake with me and prayed with me. That next morning, my, my back was still horrible. I could barely move. I called my insurance company, and I said, where do I go to the ER? I've got to go to the emergency room. My back is all this problem. And they said, well, there's a brand-new hospital really close to your home. Why don't you go there? And so Jenny helped me up, and, and I literally did baby steps out to the car, and she helped me into the car and went to this emergency room. And I was in my emergency room on this bed, and a doctor came in. And he asked me what was going on. I said, Doctor, this is the worst time for this to happen. Of all times, this is the worst. Um, and I explained to him what we were doing and going as missionaries. And he said, well, as a missionary, what insurance company are you going to use? And I said, well, um, I said, the Church of Nazarene picks up their missionaries with, with insurance, and, and they take care of us that way. And he said, well, when you're there, there's a lot of missionaries that use AIG Chartus as their insurance company. And I said, well, it's funny you said that because actually as a volunteer, my first six months there, we actually use in the Church of Nazarene AIG Chartus. And he said, well, you should know something. You should know that the, uh, when you have a problem on the field and you need to talk to a doctor to get some advice, you call one of six doctors, he told me. And he said, I'm one of those six doctors. So if you have a problem on the field during your first six months, you're probably going to talk to me. And he left the room, and I remember that moment of complete relief in my spirit as I felt like the Lord was saying to me, where you go, I will go with you. I've not missed this. I didn't forget about your back. I'm not taking you there to leave you there. I'm going to go with you where you go. I love the way it says it in, in Psalm chapter 3 from the translation, the message. This is King David speaking, and it says, God, look, enemies past counting, enemies sprouting like mushrooms, mobs of them all around me, roaring their mockery. Ha, no help for him from God, but you, God, shield me on all sides. You ground my feet, you lift my head, with all my might I shout up to God. His answers thunder from the holy mountain. I stretch myself out, I sleep, then I'm up again, rested tall and steady, fearless before the enemy mobs coming at me from all sides. Don't miss the picture there. King David is in the middle of battle. There are people, enemies surrounding him. He is going to lose. There are enemies all around him, and King David realizes that God is his shield all around him. And King David, rather than being afraid of what was around him, the scripture says he laid down and he had a really good night of sleep with enemies past counting all around him. And he slept really, really good like a baby. And he woke up the next morning strengthened and ready for the day. That's trusting that the Lord will be with you wherever you're at. The third promise is, I will make you fruitful. Isaiah 43, verse 4 says, Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you, and people in exchange for your life. You give me your life, and I will give people 
to you in exchange for you. It was 2006, and I was pastoring in Houston, Texas, and uh, we were relocating the church about 15 miles. Uh, the state of Texas had come, and they were taking our property by eminent domain, and we were forced to move to a new location. And there was one week, God had made it so perfect, there was one final Sunday, March 5th, 2006, when you're a pastor, you remember all these details. March 5th, 2006, was our final Sunday at our old place. And the very next Sunday, we had to be ready in the brand new place where we were going. We, we didn't have to be in an interim location. But we had one week to move everything from the church to a new location. Imagine that. It happened. Uh, this church kind of went through something like that. You imagine it. So... This was the week, and I knew that my life was going to get totally taken out of control, and I was going to have to work 80 to 90 hours. It was going to be a really long week. And so Jenny, actually, that week, we bought an airline's ticket for her to come up to Fort Wayne to be with her family because I didn't want to feel guilty because I knew I was going to have to work like that. And so the week came. We had decided as a church that we were not going to let anything fall through the cracks during our transition time and so we had all the ministries going we didn't slow down at all even though we knew we were going to be leaving and that week came and I was teaching that Thursday night I was teaching an evangelism class planning to to teach an evangelism class and on Thursday at lunch of that week I was eating lunch with somebody from the church and I was eating chicken and I ate and I swallowed my very first bite of chicken and that piece of chicken got stuck at the base of my esophagus. I've got a, a, a sphincter muscle at the base of my esophagus that's too narrow. And sometimes food gets stuck if I don't eat appropriately. And so in that moment, that food, it, was, it just got stuck there. Now imagine, it's like a tube. And as long as that's open at the bottom, food goes through it. But if it's blocked, it becomes like a test tube, right? And so you don't realize this, but as you speak saliva goes back to down the back of your throat, and as you go through life, that just happens. Well, it builds up. About every 10 minutes, I had to carry around. It looked like I was dipping. I had to carry around a can and and spit into the can about every 15 minutes, or I was going to have to throw up. Sorry for being so direct with you. All day long. So I'm walking around the church office, spitting in this cup, and uh, and I start thinking, it's been a couple hours now, and I've got chicken inside my body. It's kind of nice and warm in there. And I know that there are things that can grow when it's warm and it's chicken. And I thought, this is not good. And so I called Jenny and I said, Jenny, what do you think I should do? And she said, I think you should go to the emergency room and get that removed. And so I went to the emergency room. I talked to one of my staff at the church and I said, would you come up to the emergency room to take me home? Because they're probably going to put me to sleep and go down and pull this piece of chicken out. And, And so he said, yeah, I'll meet you up there. So I go up there The emergency rooms in Houston, Texas are always packed. This is Thursday late afternoon, early evening. It's packed full of people. And uh, Jack, my associate, comes in. He's sitting down next to me. We have literally almost every seat is taken in that emergency room. There's actually one seat. It's me, then Jack, and then there's one seat there. And packed full. And I'm waiting for them to call my name to go in to get help. And this lady and her, these two people come in, and they're wearing all black. And you can't see, she had a hood over her head, and, 
And uh, but they came in and they were talking really loud when they came walking in. And and there were people um, that they knew. And he went off to talk to those people. And and she came and she saw the one seat that was available right next to Jack. And she came and sat down next to Jack. Jack was turning and looking at me and talking to me. And she said, uh, so are you guys sick? And Jack, we weren't sure if she was talking to us because she wasn't we weren't looking at her. And Jack kind of turns, and we look, and sure enough, she's looking right at us. And Jack says, no, because he wasn't sick. And she goes, well, you just here at the emergency room on a Thursday night? And I leaned forward. I said, no, I'm sick, and I explained what had happened. And she said, well, um, I got bit by a spider on my leg. And she said, when I was young, and she's talking really loud to the, I mean, everybody is watching us because she's talking so loud. She said, I got bit by a spider when I was a little girl, and my parents didn't do anything about it, and it turned into a huge scar. And she starts to unzip her top, and she pulls her top down. Everybody was watching. <laughs> she pulls her top down, and on her back is a scar about the size of a silver dollar right in the center of her back. And then she had a tattoo over her entire back um, that was a spider web tattoo focusing on this spider bite in the back, in the center of her back. And we were, you know, <laughs> and she uh, pulled it back up and everybody's watching and listening to our conversation. And she stands up and it's really full of people and the chairs are close to each other. And she comes and she stands right in front of Jack and I and she has her back to us and she bends over to show us her spider bite and our we're we're close to her and she bends over and starts pulling up her leg and I realize she's doing this intentionally seductively to us and she pulls up her leg and she turns to us while she's doing this and she says uh I'm a dancer do you know where there's a gentleman's club me and Jack Holt the two two pastors from our church and she was talking real loud, and every, I was so embarrassed. And I, I leaned forward, embarrassed for her, and I said, Ma'am, I know you don't know us, but you've just asked the wrong two guys. I said, We're both pastors, and we don't know where any of those places are. And she turns, and she says, You're pastors? Well, then I need to talk to you. And she goes back to her seat, and she begins to pour out her life story to us. And it was a really rough story. And the whole ER was hearing all the details of her life. And I was supposed to be at a class teaching about how to share my faith. And I began to share my faith with her in front of everybody that day. We went through this talk and she, at the end, she said, uh, we shared phone numbers. And she said, could a person like me come to your church? And I was honest with her. I said, you know what? You're going to be the only person that looks like you that comes to our church. But our people will love you. And this pastor will love you. And we would love to have you come. And she said, I'm going to come on Sunday. Well, she got called first. And she goes behind the inner sanctum into the ER. And all of a sudden, I realized that while I had been talking to her, that I was not swallowing anymore. I was not having to spit. And I leaned over to Jack, and I said, Jack, you're not going to believe this. I think the food went down. 
And I said, I'm going to check. So I went over and I got there's a drinking fountain and I took a big drink of water and straight down. And I came back and it was and right there, the Lord, it was as if he put his hand on my shoulder. And in that moment. It was as if the Lord said, I love that that those two people so much. That I caused this to happen to you. So that you would be here the night they came in. This was what I wanted for you. That's a long story to tell you this. The scripture of Isaiah 43, 4 says, you give your life in full surrender to him. And his promise is that he will pour out people into your life. He will give you people in exchange for you. It's a great call for the church. You as a church, surrender your lives as a whole to him. And he says in the word, he says, I will call out to the north, don't hold the people back. And to the south, let them come. And as you surrender your lives to the living God, people come that need to know him, that need to know him through you as you share your faith. There's hope. He will be your God. He will not leave you alone. And he'll make you fruitful.